Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Good morning and welcome to the Thursday, July 20th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I'm Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org, christianpodcastcommunity.org. We've got over 60 very, very well curated podcasts over there. Um, so you don't have to, being that well curated, you don't have to worry about content, um, negative content, um, ugly content, whatever. Um, but, um, and wide, wide variety of topics. Uh, I, I will guarantee you that you're going to get over there and you'll at least find something to listen to. And there's a very real probability you're going to find so much to listen to. You won't have enough time to listen to all of it. Um, I know that's my problem over there. Um, as many different podcasts as I listen to, and I listen to them at time, time and a half speed so I can listen to more of them. I still don't have enough time. Um, but I do my best. Um, but definitely worth your while getting over there. I want to continue to remind you that this Sunday, July 23rd at 6 p.m. at Vail Valley Baptist Church here in Vail, Arizona, we will be showing, our church will be showing, uh, we are one of the early viewing locations for the movie The Essential Church that was put together by Grace Community Church, uh, John MacArthur and his elders and such, and Grace to You Ministries um, were able to put this together. This was about their fight with government a government trying to tell them they're not essential and shutting them down and them saying, yes, we are essential. We are a church. The community needs us and we cannot shut down. And at God's command, we cannot shut down. So definitely worthwhile. I'm very much looking forward to it and have already reserved my seats. So I'll let you know, you can reach it, reach our website at vvb.church. Uh, there, there, there will be a flyer um, image on the front page. You, you have to scroll down just a little bit. You'll find the flyer image click on it. It'll take you over to a seat reservation form. Uh, there's no cost, but because we have a, we, we've got around 300 seats, we want to make sure everybody's got a seat. So, um, but please come and join us. If you're in the area, please come and join us. It's definitely worth your while again. And I know I say that a lot, but it really is. Um, it will, I, I think it will definitely show us what they went through and help us to understand what we need to be willing to do to, follow God's will when it comes into conflict with Caesar's will, with the will of the government. So, so anyways, again, I would definitely encourage you to do so. Uh, we're going to go ahead and we're going to jump in, um, in our Bible study or our Bible reading for this morning segment. And, uh, we finally move over into second Chronicles when our Bible reading, and then in our evening segment, we will be, we're continuing on in John chapter 10. We'll be doing our second Bible study here in John chapter 10. We're continuing in the section about the good shepherd, Jesus proclaiming that he's the good shepherd. And we're going to continue on with that shepherd metaphor here. Um, but he's going to change it a little bit in these next three or four verses that we're going to deal with today or to this eat for the evening segment. But let's go ahead and open up with, uh, with it being Thursday with the fifth day morning prayer called the giver. Let's pray. 
creator, upholder, and proprietor of all things. We cannot escape from thy presence and control, nor do we desire to do so. Our privilege is to be under the agency of thy omnipotence, righteousness, wisdom, patience, mercy, and grace. For thou art love with more than parental affection. We admire thy goodness, stand in awe of thy power, abase ourselves before thy purity. It is the discovery of thy goodness alone that can banish our fear, allure us into thy presence, help us to bewail and confess our sins. We review our past guilt and are conscious of present unworthiness. We bless thee that thy steadfast love and attributes are essential to our happiness and hope. Thou hast witnessed to us thy grace and mercy in the bounties of nature, in the fullness of thy providence, in the revelations of scripture, in the gift of thy Son, in the proclamation of the gospel. Make us willing to be saved in thy own way, perceiving nothing in ourselves but all in Jesus. Help us not only to receive him, but to walk in him, depend upon him, commune with him, follow him as dear children, imperfect but still pressing forward, not complaining of labor but valuing rest, not murmuring under trials but thankful for our state, and by so doing let us silence the ignorance of foolish men. Amen. All right, our morning devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, coming out of one of my favorite books in the scriptures. Um, the text for it, and this is for July 20th, the morning one, uh, the text for it is from Ephesians 1.14, the earnest of our inheritance, speaking of our inheritance there, and the earnest of our inheritance, that seal on us. Oh, what enlightenment, what joys, what consolation, what delight of heart is experienced by that man who has learned to feed on Jesus and on Jesus alone. Yet the realization which we have of Christ's preciousness is, in this life, imperfect at the best. As an old writer says, "'Tis but a taste. We have tasted that the Lord is gracious, but we do not yet know how good and gracious he is. Although what we know of his sweetness makes us long for more, we have enjoyed the first fruits of the Spirit, and they have set us hungering and thirsting for the fullness of the heavenly vintage. We groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption. Here we are like Israel in the wilderness, who had but one cluster from Eshcol. There we shall be in the vineyard. Here we see the manna falling small, like coriander seed. But there shall we eat the bread of heaven and the old corn of the kingdom. We are but beginners now in spiritual education. For although we have learned the first letters of the alphabet, we cannot read words yet. Much less can we put sentences together. But as one says, He that has been in heaven but five minutes knows more than the general assembly of divines on earth. We have many ungratified desires at present, but soon every wish shall be satisfied, and all our powers shall find the sweetest employments in that eternal world of joy. O Christian, antedate heaven for a few years. Within a very little time thou shalt be rid of all thy troubles and thy I'm sorry. Thou shalt be rid of all thy trials and thy troubles. Thine eyes now suffused with tears shall weep no longer. Thou shalt gaze in ineffable rapture upon the splendor of him who sits upon the throne. Nay, more, upon his throne shalt thou sit. The triumph of his glory shall be shared by thee. His crown, his joy, his paradise, these shall be thine, and thou shalt be co-heir with him who is the heir of all things. All right, and now, hang on a second. We're going to get into our reading but I need a little water here first before we dive into this. Uh, so like I indicated, 
we're going into Second Chronicles. We're finally moving into Second Chronicles from First Chronicles. So we've got Second Chronicles 1, 2, and 3, Romans 6, Psalm 16, and Proverbs 19, verse 20 and 21. So Second Chronicles 1. Now Solomon, the son of David, strengthened himself over his kingdom, and Yahweh his God was with him and highly exalted him. And Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and to the judges, and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the fathers' households. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place, which was at Gibeon, for God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had made in the wilderness. However, David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jarim to the place he had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar, which Bezalel the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, was there before the tabernacle of Yahweh, and Solomon and the assembly sought it out. And Solomon went up there before Yahweh to the bronze altar, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered one thousand burnt offerings on it. In that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I should give you. Then Solomon said to God, You have shown great loving kindness to my father David, and have made me king in his place. Now, O Yahweh God, let your promise to my father David endure, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can do justice for this great people of yours? And God said to Solomon, Because you have you had this in your heart and did not ask for riches, wealth, or glory, or the life of those who hate you, nor have you even asked for long life, but you have asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may do justice for my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge have been given to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and glory, such as none of the kings who were before you had, nor those who will come after you. So Solomon went from the high place which was at Gibeon, from the tent of meeting, to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had fourteen hundred chariots and twelve thousand horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king also made silver and gold as plentiful as stones in Jerusalem, and he made cedars as plentiful excuse me, as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the Shephelah. Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and from Q. The king's merchants procured them from Q for a price, and they imported a chariot from Egypt for six hundred shekels of silver and a horse for a hundred and fifty, and by the same means they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. Second Chronicles 2 Then Solomon decided to build a house for the name of Yahweh and a royal palace for himself. So Solomon numbered 70,000 men to carry loads and 80,000 men to hew stone in the mountains and 3,600 to direct them. Then Solomon sent word to Huram, the king of Tyre, saying, As you dealt with David my father and sent him cedars to build him a house to live in, so do for me. Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of Yahweh my God, setting it apart to him as holy, to burn fragrant incense before him and to set out the showbread continually and to offer burnt offerings morning and evening on Sabbaths and on new moons and on the appointed feasts of Yahweh our God, this being required forever in Israel. Now the house which I am about to build will be great, for greater is our God than all the gods. But who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him except to burn incense before him? 
So now send me a wise man to work in gold, silver, brass, and iron, and in purple, crimson, and blue fabrics, and who knows how to make engravings, to work with the wise men whom I have in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David my father prepared. Send me also cedar, cypress, and algum timber from Lebanon, for I know that your servants know how to cut timber of Lebanon, and behold, my servants will work with your servants." to prepare timber in abundance for me for the house which i am about to build will be great and wonderful and behold i will give to your servants the woodsmen who cut the timber twenty thousand cores of crushed wheat and twenty thousand cores of barley and twenty thousand baths of wine and twenty thousand baths of oil then huram king of tyre said in a letter sent to solomon because yahweh loves his people he has given you to be king over them then huram said Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has made heaven and earth, who has given David, king, I'm sorry, who has given King David a wise son, knowledgeable in insight and understanding, who will build a house for Yahweh and a royal palace for himself. So now I am sending Huram Abi, a wise man who is knowledgeable in understanding, the son of a Danite woman and a Tyrian father, who knows how to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood, and in purple, blue, linen, and crimson fabrics, and who knows how to make all kinds of engravings and to devise any design which may be given to him, to work with your wise men and with the wise men of my lord David your father. So now let my lord send to his servants wheat and barley, oil and wine, of which he has spoken, and we will cut whatever timber you need from Lebanon and bring it to you on rafts by sea to Joppa, so that you may carry it up to Jerusalem. Then Solomon numbered all the sojourners who were in the land of Israel, following the census which his father David had taken, and a 153,600 were found. And he made 70,000 of them to carry loads, and 80,000 as hewers of stone in the mountains, and 3,600 directors to make the people work. Second Chronicles 3 Then Solomon began to build the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where Yahweh had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Then he began to build on the second day in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. Now these are the foundations which Solomon laid for building the house of God. The length and cubits, according to the old standard, was sixty cubits, and the width twenty cubits. And the porch which was in front of the house was as long as the width of the house, twenty cubits, and the height, one hundred and twenty. And inside he overlaid it with pure gold. Now he overlaid the main room with cypress wood, and overlaid it with fine gold, and ornamented it with palm trees and chains. Further, he overlaid the house with precious stones for beauty, and the gold was gold from Parvain. He also covered the house with gold, the beams, the thresholds, and its walls and its doors, and he carved cherubim on the walls. And he made the room of the Holy of Holies. Its length across the width of the house was twenty cubits, and its width was twenty cubits, and he covered it with fine gold, amounting to six hundred talents. Now the weight of the nails was fifty shekels of gold. He also covered the upper rooms with gold. Then in the room of the Holy of Holies he made two cherubim of fashioned work, and overlaid them with gold. Now the wingspan of the cherubim was twenty cubits. The wing of one of five cubits touched the wall of the house, and its other wing of five cubits touched the wing of the other cherub. And the wing of the other cherub of five cubits touched the wall of the house, and its other wing of five cubits was attached to the wing of the first cherub. The wings of these cherubim extended twenty cubits, and they stood on their feet facing the main room. And he made the veil of blue 
purple, crimson, and fine linen, and he ornamented cherubim on it. He also made two pillars for the front of the house, thirty-five cubits high, and the capital on the top of each was five cubits. And he made chains in the inner sanctuary and put them on the top of the pillars, and he made one hundred pomegranates and put them on the chains. Thus he set up the pillars in front of the temple, one on the right and one on the left, and named the one on the right Jason, and the one on the left Boaz. All right, Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been justified from sin." Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you go on presenting yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then having from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have your benefit, leading to sanctification, and the end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Psalm 16, a mictam of David. Keep me, O God, for I take refuge in you. O my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good without you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The pains of those who have bartered for another god will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me, because he is at my right hand. 
I will not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And finally, Proverbs 19, verses 20 and 21. Listen to counsel and receive discipline, that you may be wise in the end of your days. Many thoughts are in a man's heart, but it is the counsel of Yahweh that will stand. All right, well, that is our reading for the day. I hope you have yourself a wonderful Thursday. Um, I will continue to implore you to do all that you do for the glory of God. And I hope to see you for this e for the evening segment. Uh, let's go ahead and close out in prayer. The prayer we're going to use from Valley Vision is called the Grace of the Cross. Let's pray. Oh, my Savior, I thank thee from the depths of my being for thy wondrous grace and love in bearing my sin in thine own body on the tree. May thy cross be to me as the tree that sweetens my bitter, my bitter maras, as the rod that blossoms with life and beauty, as the brazen serpent that calls forth the look of faith. By thy cross crucify my every sin. Use it to increase my intimacy with thyself. Make it the ground of all my comfort and liveliness of all my duties, the sum of all thy gospel promises, the comfort of all my afflictions, the vigor of my love, thankfulness, graces, the very essence of my religion, and by it give me that rest without rest, the rest of ceaseless praise. O my Lord and Savior, thou hast also appointed a cross for me to take up and carry, a cross before thou givest me a crown. Thou hast appointed it to be my portion, but self-love hates it. Carnal reason is unreconciled to it. Without the grace of patience, I cannot bear it. Walk with it, profit by it. O blessed cross, what mercies dost thou bring with thee? Thou art only esteemed hateful by my rebel will, heavily because I shirk thy load. I'm sorry, heavy because I shirk thy load. Teach me, gracious Lord and Savior, that with my cross thou sendest promised grace, grace, so that I may bear it patiently, that my cross is thy yoke, which is easy, and thy burden, which is light. Amen. All right, again, thank you for spending this time with me this morning. I Again, I hope you have a wonderful day, and I hope to see you this evening. Have a good one. God bless. Welcome to the evening segment of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Thursday, July 20th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. All right, this evening we're going to continue on in our study of John chapter 10. We're going to be continuing on with this section about the Good Shepherd and a ministry marked by contrast to false shepherds. So we're going to do that. Um, so with that being said, let's go ahead and let's jump right in. Let's go ahead and open up with prayer. Uh, the prayer we're going to use from uh, Valley of Vision is called the Divine Will. Let's pray. O Lord, I hang on thee. I see, believe, live when thy will, not mine, is done. I can plead nothing in myself in regard of any worthiness and grace in regard of thy providence and promises, but only thy good pleasure. If thy mercy make me poor and vile, blessed be thou. Prayers arising from my needs are preparations for future mercies. 
Help me to honor thee by believing before I feel, for great is the sin if I make feeling a cause of faith. Show me what sin, I'm sorry, show me what sins hide thee from me and eclipse thy love. Help me to humble myself for past evils, to be resolved to walk with more care. For if I do not walk holily before thee, how can I be assured of my salvation? It is the meek and humble who are shown thy covenant. Know thy will, are pardoned and healed, who by faith depend and rest upon grace, who are sanctified and quickened, who evidence thy love. Help me to pray in faith, and so find thy will, by leaning hard on thy rich free mercy, by believing thou wilt give what thou hast promised. Strengthen me to pray with the conviction that whatever that whatever I receive is thy gift, so that I may pray until prayer be granted. Teach me to believe that all degrees of mercy arise from several degrees of prayer, that when faith is begun it is imperfect and must grow, as chapped ground opens wider and wider until rain comes. So shall I wait thy will, pray for it to be done, and by thy grace become fully obedient. Amen. All right, and our evening devotion for July 20th is, let's see, the text for it is from Jeremiah 2.18. And now what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt, to drink the waters of Sihor? By sundry miracles, by diverse mercies, by strange deliverances, Jehovah had proved himself to be worthy of Israel's trust. Yet they broke down the hedges with which God had enclosed them as a sacred garden. They forsook their own true and living God and followed after false gods. Constantly did the Lord reprove them for this infatuation. And our text contains one instance of God's expostulation with them. What hast thou to do in the way of Egypt? To drink the waters of the muddy river? For so it may be translated. Why dost thou wander afar and leave thine own cool stream from Lebanon? Why dost thou forsake Jerusalem to turn aside to Noth and to Tahapanis? Why art thou so strangely set on mischief that thou canst not be content with the good and healthful, but wouldst, but wouldst follow after that which is evil and deceitful? Is there not here a word of expostulation and warning to the Christian? O true believer, called by grace and washed in the precious blood of Jesus, thou hast tasted of better drink than the muddy river of this world's pleasure can give thee. Thou hast had fellowship with Christ, thou hast obtained the joy of seeing Jesus and, lean, and leaning thine head upon his bosom. Do the trifles, the songs, the honors, the merriment of this earth content thee after that? Hast thou eaten the bread of angels, and canst thou live on husks? Good Rutherford once said, I have tasted of Christ's own manna, and it hath put my mouth out of taste for the brown bread of this world's joys. Methinks it should be so with thee. If thou art wandering after the waters of Egypt, O return quickly to the one living fountain. The waters of Sihor may be sweet to the Egyptians, but they will provide only bitterness to thee. What hast thou to do with them? Jesus asked thee this question this evening. What wilt thou answer him? All right. Like I said, we're continuing on with our study in John chapter 10. Uh, we're going to be working verses 7 through 10. So let's go ahead and start from verse 1. And I'm going to read you John 10 verses 1 through 10, and then we'll get into our study. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he brings all his own out, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. 
a stranger they will never follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were, wh were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. All right. Well, you know, like we've been talking about, Jesus has been continuously since John chapter five, going head to head with the, with the, this Jewish leadership that, and like I've told you before, um, the Jewish leadership was the religious leadership. This is the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, um, the Sadducees and chief priests tended to be from the upper class, the Pharisees and the scribes, which were the, the legal group of the Pharisees were more from the common man, but they were the leadership. They formed the Sanhedrin which was the leadership of, of, of Judah, of, of Israel, of, of the Jewish people. Um, and Jesus has been going head to head to head with them. They, they just cannot grasp that this man is the son of man, is the Messiah, is the Christ, is the son of God. They're, they're just not grasping it. And, and, you know, and that's the thing we saw in, in chapter nine, um, as this, this, this section here and, Chapter nine flows straight into chapter 10. What happens in chapter nine, 10 is happening just after chapter nine. I mean, this is a continuing conversation. Um, and what starts in chapter nine, the healing of the man born blind, um, was sometime after the, um, feast of booths, feast of tabernacles. That was about six months before Jesus is crucified. Um, but we don't know how long it, it, it seems to indicate that it didn't happen immediately but we don't have an exact amount of time. It could have been within a few days. It could have been within a few weeks. We, ju we just don't know. But again, it, it takes place. But again, we see through that. I mean, basically the way I think of it is all of chapter nine could be determined, could be talking about physical sight and spiritual sight. Because Jesus gives that to this man, to that man born blind. He gives him physical spy sight and then he gives him spiritual sight. And we see this man come to a saving faith in the last verses of John chapter nine. Um, and, and throughout that, we see the unbelief manifested by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I mean, we saw some of his neighbors at first going, some of them going, whoa, this is the man that was born blind. And others going, no, 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 it just, the, he seems like it, but it's not because they want to ignore the miracle that had just happened, even though the guy's standing right there. Um, but then we see the Pharisees do the same thing. And we, again, we talk about it. We, we talked about um, the, what MacArthur titled that section, unbelief investigates a miracle. And, and we see the, the four attributes. Unbelief is inconsistent. It's intractable. It's irrational and it's insolent. And that insolence, we see them, you know, then verbally attack the guy, even though the, the man born blind, even though throughout verse 31, 32, and 33, he makes a clear syllogism, makes a clear logical argument showing clearly that Jesus must be from God. He doesn't necessarily try to convince him that he's the Messiah, but he goes, but he's like, all the data you've got right here, 
all the facts you have right here make clear that this man is from God. And they insult him and they throw him out of the out of the synagogue. And like I've said before, that was huge for them. You and I getting tossed out of a church here locally, like if I were to go go down down the road to one of the churches here and then throw me out, it wouldn't be as big a deal. Um I well Actually, it would be because it would be sad that I was doing something stupid enough to get thrown out of a church, but, but whatever, but you know what I mean? I mean, being part of the synagogue was, was, was a root and a core part of their life. So he gets tossed out and then we see Jesus come back and we see this section that we see the comparison between spiritual sight or spiritual blindness. And here's where we see the spiritual sight. We've seen his physical sight manifest in the discussion back and forth, back and forth and back and forth. And then here's the discussion of the spiritual sight. And we see the spiritual sight manifest. We, we see divine initiative to it, to divine initiative, spiritual sight requiring divine initiative. Um, because Jesus comes and speaks to him. Do you believe in the son of man? And the guy's like, who is he that I can believe? So spiritual sight responds in faith. And then we see spiritual sight recognizes Christ and results in worship. We see Jesus tell him, I who, and, and I'm paraphrasing because he says more than this, but I who speak to you, him, he, and, and he knows the son, the son of man, this is the Messiah. And he goes, Lord, I believe. And he falls on his face, just completely prostrate, just prostrate and worships. But then we see the spiritual blindness manifest again. We see that spiritual blindness receives judgment. We see that it refuses to admit its condition and reject spiritual sight. And then we see spiritual blindness results in doom. It's very, very clear what is going to happen to those who maintain their spiritual blindness. I mean, they even asked the, the, the Pharisees even asked, we're not blind, are we? Well, Jesus is very clear. If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you claim to see, and, and basically it would translate, since you claim not to be spiritually blind, because you won't humble yourself to admit you're spiritually blind, your sin will remain. Meaning the conviction of that sin and its, and its result, meaning resulting in doom, will remain. So we've moved on into John chapter 10. And you can actually see this continue. I mean, this spiritual sight and spiritual blindness Jesus goes into this, and this is another one of the I am statements. Um, and I believe this is actually, yeah, this is the second of the I am statements. Um, uh, where did it go? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm actually incorrect here. So anyways, um, but Jesus starts speaking and he's speaking of the good shepherd and he's making the contrast, this first section here. So speaking about the good shepherd, um, the section about the good shepherd is verse one to verse 21 of John chapter 10. And this first section he's, we're dealing with um, from verse one to verse 10, which we'll finish up this evening, is about a ministry being marked by contrast to false shepherds. So again, good shepherd versus false shepherd. Good shepherd is who we are to be, is who any, any that... Any that would profess, that, that that would preach, that would teach, that would pastor should be and who Jesus is. But we should contrast with the false shepherds. And we see that in verses one through six, that Jesus is the true shepherd of the sheep, 
of the sheep, not the other, sorry, <laughs> not speaking well. Um, and he makes clear to the fact that, that he is the one who is allowed in and out of the door by the doorkeeper and the doorkeeper will let him in and out and he will lead his sheep in and out and his sheep will recognize his voice and they will follow him and he'll lead them out and he'll lead them into the pastures going before them to check the ground and to protect them. Um, and he goes on to make clear that they won't follow a stranger. They'll flee from him because they don't know the voice. And he's making very, very clear. And he's speaking about them. He's speaking about the Pharisees. It's very clear he's speaking about them. And they're not getting it. We see that in verse 6. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were, which he had been saying to them. So they didn't get it. So we see here, uh, so this is the third of the I am statements we see here in verse 7. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. So he changes up the metaphor. And I, I mentioned that at the, at the beginning, he changes up the metaphor a little bit. He's still talking about shepherding, but he changes up the metaphor a little bit here. So he goes from showing that he's the good shepherd to saying that he is the door of the sheep. So, so actually let's look at this first. Truly, truly, I say to you now, what, what did we say when we looked at that back in chapter 10, verse one, and actually we've said multiple times again, he's saying, I am about to tell you the truth of God and you need to sit up and you need to hear this because this is truth. But then he goes on. I am the door of the sheep. So what does that mean? So we talked about it before that um, in verse one, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some of the way he is a thief and a robber. So you're supposed to enter by the door. And, but he who enters by the door verse two by the door is a shepherd of the sheep enters by the door. So again, the door, and then we talk about the doorkeeper in verse three to him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So we hear that. So again, now he's going from having been showing himself as the good shepherd to being the door of the sheep. So when the, when these sheepfolds were built, they were built with an opening, which was the door. Now, typically they did not build them, at least from the research I've done, with necessarily some kind of wooden swinging door or some kind of gate or whatever, but they might have, they might have. I've not seen that many. Usually it was just a wall, a wall of rocks that went around the whole thing with a gap in it. And that was the door. So the doorkeeper would Typically, and typically it would, like I said, it would be a shepherd. I, I, I think I mentioned that before. The doorkeeper was a shepherd. In a lot of cases, it was a shepherd that was explicitly hired to maintain the door of the sheepfold, to, to, to maintain entry and exit of the sheepfold. Typically, that shepherd at night would sleep in the doorway. There was a, many a time they would sleep in the doorway. They didn't turn around, lock the door and go home. They stayed there all night. And they slept in the door so that there's no way that if, if some reason or other they fell asleep, and in a lot of cases they would, the sheep couldn't get out without them knowing that they were trying to, and nobody could get in without them knowing unless they tried to climb over the walls, like the thieves and the robbers spoken of in verses 1 through 6, and as we'll see again in verse 10. Um, so again, so the shepherd acted as the door 
as the door blocking that entrance and exit to the sheepfold. So Jesus is making clear, I'm the door of the sheep. I am how, and I am the only way for, and again, that's what I'm telling you for the sheep. They can only go in and out through that door. The sheep aren't going to go up over the wall. These walls are such, they're not going up over the wall. They are not getting in and out of that sheepfold other than through the door. And Jesus is saying, I am that door. They can only come in and out through me. He's making clear here that the sheep must enter the safety of God's fold and go out to the rich pastures only through him. And that's out of MacArthur's commentary. Only through him can they reach that safety of the, of God's fold and, and the, the abundance of the fields, the abundance of salvation, the, the, um, abundance of God's blessing through the door, through Jesus himself. He's making it very clear. I mean, remember that in John 14, verse six, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me, he's the door. He's the door of the sheep. He's the only way for them to go in and out for them to come into the safety of the fold and for them to go out and partake of the blessings of God. That is the only way, he is the only way. He's making that very clear. We go on in verse eight. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Now again, let me let me be clear. Okay, so don't, don't misunderstand that. When he says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, he's not speaking of David or Moses or Solomon or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob slash Israel. He's not speaking of them or Daniel or, or any of those. Uh, the, the, Elijah, Elisha. He's not speaking of those. Okay. He's not calling them thieves and robbers. What he's referring to are the myriad of kings and um, counselors and the false prophets. Um, oh, who is it? I wish I could think of it. Um, that uh, when... Uh, Jehoshaphat, I think it was Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, had gone up to visit with the king of Israel. And the king of Israel wanted Jehoshaphat and his army to go out with the king of Israel and fight. And Jehoshaphat's like, well, we are we are as your brothers, you know, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, we, we are as your brothers. Um, and so all of the prophets, and I'm using air quotes, all of the prophets, um, Oh, and I can't think of the guy, the the lead prophet's name, who ends up making a horn, a helmeted horn thing, like, like a bull's, you know, rack, um, that he puts on his head and he goes, uh, like this, you will gore your enemies, blah, blah, blah. And Jehoshaphat says, aren't, aren't, don't you still have any prophets of God, of Yahweh here? And there's only one. And, and, and I think it's Micaiah, son of Imla, I think is who it is. I could be wrong. But they bring him, and but but of course the king, and I can't think of the king. It's probably Ahab. Um, the king of Israel says, "Yeah, but I hate to hear from the guy because he always speaks bad about me." But let's go ahead and do it. So he brings him up, and and the guy initially says the same thing that the others are are, are saying, um, but obviously superfluously. And the king of Israel goes, "How many times have I told you to tell the truth?" 
to tell only what God says. So he comes back and tells them, yeah, you're all going to be slaughtered. Yeah, you, you, they're going to be like loose sheep on the fields. Okay. So those prophets, those, those, those prophets that were giving false prophecy, that they were giving what they wanted to say, not what God was saying. They were not truly presenting God's will. Um, you know, that's who he's talking about. That's who Jesus is talking about. The ones that, um, when Jer, I think it was Jeremiah clearly told them, no, do not go down to Egypt. We need to stay right here. God is saying we should stay right here. And they said, no. And these, these are the ones after, um, after, um, oh, and I can't re remember the gentleman. I guess I should, I should memorize my Bible better. Um, but, but after Nebuchadnezzar has taken a bunch of people away and everything like that, and somebody's left in charge, and then a bunch of the Jews that are left around come and slaughter the guy left in charge, and they run off. And so the people that are left are like, terrified and they don't want to stay there because they're afraid they're going to be getting, getting in trouble from Nebuchadnezzar. So they figure they'll run off to Egypt and they'll be safe there. But the fact is they're not going to be safe there. And Jeremiah tries to stop them. Well, they say, no, 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 no. God doesn't say, God isn't saying that. They, they very clearly say, God is not saying that you are wrong, but Jeremiah wasn't wrong. And then going to, going to Egypt actually made their lives worse. That's who he's talking about. That's who he's saying that all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Again, not, not Daniel, not, not Elijah or Elisha, not Moses, not David, not Solomon. That that's not who he's talking about. Okay. Um, not, not Hezekiah, not Ezra, not, not Nehemiah. That's not who he's talking about. So please don't misunderstand that. But again, he makes clear the rest of them are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't hear them again. They're thieves and robbers. So they could, they couldn't, nor would they lead the sheep properly in the worship of God and lead them towards the kingdom of God. They're not doing that. So Jesus then reiterates in verse nine, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So again, this, this is again, what we will also see in John 14, verse six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Again, nobody comes to the Father except through me. So if anyone enters the sheepfold, enters the kingdom, through me, he will be saved. And we will go in and out and find pasture. So he'll come, he'll freely go in and out. He'll go in and out led by the shepherd. He will have all the abundance of God's blessing and he'll have the safety of of God's sheepfold, the safety of the kingdom of God. But Jesus is clear only through, you know, when he's saying that I am the door, if anyone enters, he's saying, I am the door, meaning there is no other. There is no other. I'm sorry. Too many people out there. Well, you know, as long as you end up in the right place, however you come, however you come to faith is okay. No, it's not. I'm sorry. Or, or the, the statement that gets made out there, oh, we all believe in the same God. No, we don't. No, we don't. I have many friends out there that are Mormons that I love, that I love dearly. The God they believe in is not the God of the Bible. If they do not come through the Christ of the Bible to a saving faith in Christ, they are not going to heaven. They are not saved. They are condemned to hell. Sorry, Islam, Muslims, 
the God they believe in is not the same God that is of the Bible. They do not believe in the same Jesus. They believe he's a prophet. They don't believe he's the son of God. Unless they come to a saving faith in Christ, they are condemned to hell for all eternity. That's fact. Those that want to sit there and, 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 uh, you know, um, black pen and, and red pen and whatever the Bible and cross out the things they don't want to deal with. The God they claim to believe in is not the God of the Bible. And unless they come to a true saving faith in Christ, they are condemned to hell, no matter what they think about it. So they are not, they are not entering through Christ. So they will not be saved and they will not go in, in and out and find pasture. They will be standing there on judgment day and Jesus will say, leave me, I never knew you. And they will be cast into the lake of fire. So Jesus wraps this up with the, this verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. <clears throat> Again, those he spoke of back in verse eight, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. Again, what, what do we talk about the Pharisees? And again, he's referring to the Pharisees here. Yeah, he's talking about those back through the history of Israel, but he's also talking about the Pharisees here. Again, we've I've made very, very clear to you, and I made clear to you when he was talking about the false shepherds and the true shepherds, that still applies here. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, all but the few who actually come to a saving faith in Christ, the only thing they care about is themselves. Again, like I said last night, having the best seats in the synagogue, um, get um, having having the long the best robes, the 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 longer fringes, the the greetings, the the proper greetings in the public square. Um, they wanted all honor and glory for themselves and all money as well. Believe me, um, when Jesus came in and was flipping over tables, we've got to remember this. And I, and I know I talked about it before. Um, I've talked about it before and I've, and I think I've talked about it on this podcast, but if I haven't and haven't made that clear, let me make clear the priests were all about they, they, the, the Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, scribes, that Jewish leadership, they were all about making money. The, the outer court having the court of the Gentiles, having been turned into a marketplace, that was all about making money. Again, I I've tried to make clear before, um, many a time by that point. Somebody would come in, bring in their sacrifice. It would be absolutely perfect and appropriate for sacrifice. And the priest would say, no, this is not good enough. Make them sell that at a loss so that the, the religious establishment could resell it at a profit and then make them buy something at a huge markup, thus making the religious establishment a profit. Uh, big profit. And in the process of that, because they came from a different part of like, let's say they came in from Galilee. Well, the money they used in Galilee was different than what they used in, in, um, Jerusalem. So they would have to exchange the money they had made or the, the money they brought in with themselves so they could buy this stuff. And there was a processing fee to exchange money. And they would be again, exchanged at a loss making more money. I'm not, I'm not making this up. 
This is what was going on. It is a money-making scheme. They are thieves and they are robbers. They have absolutely no desire to be true shepherds, to be good shepherds, and to lead God's sheep, to protect them, to educate them, to clean them, to, to, to make sure they're healthy, to do any of that. They've got absolutely no desire to do so. And that is what he's saying. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Those are the people he's talking to, and that's what he's pointing out. And then he makes clear, I came that they may have life. And this is both physical and spiritual life and have it abundantly. And the word here for abundantly is parisos. It describes something. I'm reading this from MacArthur's commentary. It describes something that goes far beyond what is necessary. The matchless gift of eternal life exceeds all expectation. That's what Jesus provides that none of them, none of the others can provide. They never will. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the door, the only door. And the rest are thieves and robbers. And we see that in our day. We see solid, solid biblical pastors and preachers out there in small churches giving their all, giving everything they have to truly feed God's sheep. As, as Jesus asked Peter um, at John 21, John chapter 21, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Or Simon, do you love me? Um, and, and he tells him to feed the sheep, to tend the sheep. Um, and I, I forget all three of them. I'm sorry. I'd have to read it directly. But again, those pastors that are out there doing that. And in a lot of cases nowadays, they're bivocational. They have a full-time job and I'm not talking a full-time, maybe 40 hour job. I'm talking a lot of them full-time 50, 60, 70 hour job and being a full-time pastor because there's no such thing as a part-time pastor, not a real pastor, no such thing out there. But they're not the thieves and the robbers. They are out there feeding their sheep. But we got an awful lot of thieves and robbers running around. That it's all about lining the pockets. It's all about making the big cash. And those we must stay away from. Because Jesus is the door of the sheep. And it's the Jesus of the Bible. Not the one we want him to be. But the one the Bible says he is, the son of man, the Messiah, the son of God, the Christ. He is the door and only through him will we be saved and we'll go in and out and find pasture and have life and have it abundantly. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this evening. I'm sorry. I ran a little long again to this evening. Um, and tomorrow, God willing, we'll pick up with the next section and we'll wrap up this whole overall section next week. Again, God willing. Um, let's go ahead and close out with prayer. We're going to do the fifth day evening prayer. It's called protection. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, thou art our preserver, governor, savior, and coming judge. Quieten our souls to call upon thy name. Detach us from the influence of the flesh and the senses. Impress us with the power of faith. Promote us. I'm sorry, promote in us spirituality of mind that will render our services acceptable to thee and delightful and profitable to ourselves. Bring us into that state which attracts thine eye 
and prepare us to receive the proofs of thy love. Show us our danger that we may fly to thee for refuge. Make us sensible of our sin's disease, that we may value the good physician. Placard to us the cross, that it may slay the enmity of our hearts. Help us to be watchful over our ways, jealous over our tempers, diligent over our hearts. When we droop, revive us. When we loiter, quicken us. When we go astray, restore us. Possess us with more of that faith, which is the principle of all vital godliness. May we be rich in faith, be strong in faith, live by faith, walk by faith, experience the joy of faith, do the work of faith, hope through faith, perceiving nothing in ourselves. May we find in the Savior wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Amen. All right. Well, I hope you have a wonderful evening. I thank you for spending this time with me um, together in the Gospel of John. I hope you have a wonderful evening. And uh, I hope to see you tomorrow morning. Have a good night. God bless. Thank you.